Welcome to Business of Design. Business of Design is the world's best business training for interior design professionals like you. The Business of Design podcast offers immediate, actionable strategies and a glimpse into some of the many field-tested, proven systems you can implement to transform your business and your life. After the show, head to businessofdesign.com and get started with the BOD 15-step project management strategy and six foundational programs. Together, they deliver the systems, procedures, and strategies you need to run a successful, highly profitable design business. There's no theory here. The complete BOD business model is yours through Business of Design membership. Business of Design. There's only one. And now, your BOD Advocate-in-Chief, Kimberly Selden. Well, hello, hello, you fabulous interior design professional. We're so glad you're here. This is Business of Design, and we're having a really interesting conversation today with a lovely woman named Melissa Morris. We are going to talk about that propensity each of us has to kind of over-deliver Now, initially, when I heard the idea for this topic, I was thinking of it in a different way. I was thinking of that tendency I had when I was younger to over-deliver in terms of the number of ideas I would give a client. If she wanted new draperies, I would bring four fabrics or five fabrics or six fabrics. And I told myself that was because I wanted to make sure I captured what she wanted. I didn't want to take any chances that I wouldn't excite her with one of my options. So I had too many. But what I saw clearly in the client's face was confusion. Too many options cause some anxiety in the client. And now I completely understand that as a client myself, right? I don't want to go to someone who says, well, we could do it this way, this way, or this way. I want someone to tell me, this is the way you should do it. This is what's going to work out. For me, what was lurking behind the good motive to give them lots of options so I made sure I made them happy was self-doubt, a lack of confidence, right? I didn't want to fail So I was covering all the bases, but really that just planted in the mind of the client a seed that maybe I wasn't the expert she was hoping I was going to be. And I suppose that is part of over-delivering, right? Another example of over-delivering is when perfectionism runs riot. You're working on a presentation, for example, or I'm working on a presentation and I've got a lovely picture of the faucet I want to propose, but Maybe there's a better picture of the faucet. Oh, maybe there's still another better picture of the faucet. And I go down these rabbit holes where I'm fine-tuning something that probably is good enough, if that makes sense. It's not that I want to do mediocre work, not at all. But there are times when I can over-deliver on a task that doesn't need to be over-delivered on. And both of those are part of this idea of over-delivering, but specifically what we're going to talk with Melissa about today is that interior design professional who uses a flat fee contract, which I do about 40% of the time, a flat fee contract, and then finds herself or himself over-delivering on what was promised. And in many cases, it's because the scope of work was not clearly defined. And we don't want to find ourselves there. So that's why we're going to talk to Melissa Morris. She is the founder of Agency Authority, which is a project management and operation consultancy for agency owners. And she worked in an agency for 10 years, and now she helps agency owners maximize their team, increase their productivity, and grow profits. 
Melissa and I speak the same language. We're both highly committed to process. We're both highly committed to tracking the resource of time. So you're going to hear that on this episode. And the bottom line is the more process I have in place and the more I can clearly articulate that process and stick to the boundaries I've created to protect that process, the happier my clients are going to be and the more profitable I'm going to be. And one of the big takeaways, I think this is so important, so I'm going to mention it here as well, but you're going to hear it in the episode, is that the very first time your client wants to step out of process, whether that's a small thing or a big thing, that is actually the most important time to say no. That's the hill you want to die on because the minute you show yourself to be flexible around process, you will be negotiating over all kinds of procedures. And when it comes to a showdown between you and client around operational matters, In that equation, you're the only person who has experience running an interior design firm and running interior design projects. So you have to take the lead. Oh, good stuff. And we've got more good stuff coming your way because right now, Cheryl Horn is going to join me for some quick announcements and then we are going to jump into the show. Did I already say we're glad you're here? Because we really are. Was that a long weekend that just happened or did I imagine that? It was, it was I, a nice one too, at least here. You're still in California before you hit the road this week, right? But we had really nice weather. It felt like, you know, a little bit of a taste of summer at least. You guys, you, you took the kids swimming. It was too cold here. I need to go back to Toronto oh, wow. to get warm. Like what is happening? It's been really, yeah, really say, cold yeah, here. Yeah, I can't say I was in the pool for long. I'm kind of wimpy with that, but like my kids spend hours in there regardless of temperature. So oh, <laughs> that's the best thing. If I were if I were a grandmother, I think I would want a pool. I think that's like just a magnet for the grandkids to come over. I have grand yeah. dogs, which I have been babysitting. <laughs> which they is, might like a pool too, though. No, they sink like stones. It's it's <laughs> terrifying. They're bulldogs, right? A Frenchie oh, okay. and an English. Yeah. The English just drops like a rock. It's the scariest thing. When he was little, we were in Palm Springs and he just plunged to the bottom of the pool. It was terrifying. <laughs> I've always had labs and retrievers, so it's keeping them like out of the pool. That's, that's the problem. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. Well, we don't have any problems at Business of Design, which is good. It's all smooth sailing ahead. But what is going on? Well, coming up, I actually just added a new event to the calendar. Uh-huh. Uh, you're headed back to Vegas in August. We haven't done summer market there before, but uh, it's happening August 1st. You're going to be talking about recession-proof your business. When you were just there recently at High Point, uh, that was sort of a topic that was requested. So they're bringing you back for the Las Vegas market to talk about that. Well, we hope it's going to be a talk that you don't need to apply things from immediately. But the fact of the matter is economies change, right? It gets softer, it gets firmer, it gets, you know, more robust, it gets dynamic. So it's going to be all the things you need to do to make sure that you're not on a roller coaster when the economy does change. So yeah, okay. That's right. They, the, a lot of people are asking, do you think there's a recession? Is there a recession? I'm still busy or things have slowed down. So does that mean there's a recession? And there are definitely things you want to do before you find yourself you know, too far down the road. Well, and I think based on current conversations and um, meetings with current members, people are already making decisions out of fear. Yeah. And I think it's about being prepared 
so that you're ready to make mis- decisions when they need to happen and you're not necessarily reacting before you need to. That's a really, really good point. So that's August 1st. August 1st, Las Vegas market, recession-proof your business. Okay, I'm excited about that. I think that the time's around 1 o'clock, and those events are free, but they do like you to register in advance. You do have to register. Okay. Yes, so link is on the website. Uh, you, have to re- you have to register both for market and the seminar itself. We always emphasize that when we do mm-hmm. events with the markets, you're entering the market, even if you're just there for events, which most most people are doing the whole show. Mm-hmm. Um, but you do need to register separately for both, so make sure you're, you've done that. Um, and then October, you're, we've got you going all over the place. Uh, <laughs> Toronto, Santa Monica, and Winchester for the BOD 15 two-day uh, intensive seminars. The specific dates for each, uh, all are in October, but Toronto is October 4th and 5th, Santa Monica, October 11th and 12th, and then Winchester, October 25th and 26th. So we keep referring to it as sort of the boot camp version of the BOD 15, because you're going to go through the full 15 steps in those two days. They're very intensive days. There's a lot to cover. And, uh, Having just done this in Australia, we sort of had half the group were longtime members who wanted the refresher, wanted to get through it quickly and ask either clarifying questions or Mm -hmm. uh, questions specific to using those steps on current projects. And then others, this is how they learned the BOD 15 for the first time. And it was a great group. And I know it worked really well for both. And what was fun too, several who were brand new wanted more information at the end about how to become a BOD boss member. And the process includes not only an application, but you have to have finished the BOD 15 because you have to be able to run your projects. You know, that's that's like got to be a given because the boss is going to dig deep into financials and financial planning and, you know, exam- looking at your profit and loss statement and sharing some techniques for you to get, you know, higher revenue and higher profits along the way. So that was fun. So they're like, so did we finish the BOD 15? We're like, we did, you did, and you can apply for boss now. So that was, that's kind of a fun perk of it. Yeah. And I'm in touch actually with a lot of the, um, those who attended because now they're members working through the steps, uh, cause it's nice to have the online access because then you can rewatch the steps as you're actually tackling those within a live project. That's super important. So um, registration is open on the website uh, for all three locations. Uh, You can currently save $200 for early bird pricing. It's $21.95. And then of course, members are going to save an additional $200 on top of that. I'm looking forward to seeing you. Come on out. Toronto, Santa Monica, and DC area, Winchester. Great cities to visit. Great cities to, uh, to be able to work from. That's for sure. For sure. And that's kind of all for events. But one thing that I did want to note, uh, just in editing this specific uh, episode, you know, when we um, are interviewing people for the BOD, we always, for the podcast rather, uh, we always want to make sure that the BOD systems are very clear. One thing that I did note, because the topic is going to be, you know, you guys touch on flat fees in this, I did want to clarify that the BOD method for doing flat fees does differ from some of the points made in this episode. Oh, yeah, actually. Yeah. So within um, BOD membership, that's where you're going to learn the BOD 15. And our method for doing flat fees is really critical on having done and implemented the BOD 
15. Uh, I really encourage you to go through the BOD 15 within membership. And then of course, if you are doing flat fees versus hourly, we have a dedicated course as well as the flat fee contract within the BOD um, shop. And I know that, you know, I would say implementing flat fees is probably one of the top, um, the top reasons why you do one-on-one coaching calls right. as well. Because I think, um, you know, especially if you've got staff, a lot of people, when you're doing flat fees, you get to a point in the project where suddenly you're not only working for free because you undercharged, yeah. but scope creep, things like that, that you're not accounting for in how you're running projects. And yeah. now you're paying staff to do a project that you're no longer getting right. paid for. So, and you're wondering um, why at the end of the year, not you're not making money, right? I'm yeah. so glad you brought that up because as she's talking, I'm thinking like, oh yeah, well, we don't, we don't have that problem because of the method that we use. We don't have that problem. We don't have that problem. And I didn't want to keep interrupting her um, because of course, Melissa is dealing with, uh, you know, lots of people who don't have a method like ours. And she's dealing with people who run projects the way I used to years ago and thought I was going to lose my mind. So anyway, <laughs> it's a great episode. She's wonderful. And I'm glad you brought that up. Our flat fee method will prevent you from having to go through most of those pain points. Yeah, for sure. Because it, it accounts for scope creep and, you know, certain expenses that a lot of designers are incurring themselves versus where right. do they fit into what you're charging. So um, anyway, I did just want to point that out. So uh, the BOD 15 is within membership. That is critical um, to have that in place before tackling the flat fee to make sure it's effective. Uh, But again, there's a dedicated course as well as the contract within the BOD shop. So anyway, that was just a little side note before I let you go. Okay. Thank you. Now it's like, it's a full work week now. No more, no more long weekend. We got to get on it. I know it's a shortened week, so we got a lot more to pack into shortened days. Oh dear. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Talk to you soon. Business of Design is sponsored by Daniel House Club. Over the last year, Daniel House Club has helped interior design professionals save over $2.3 million in their furniture procurement. With Daniel House Club, Trade professionals like you and me no longer need to jump through hoops or remember hundreds of logins to profitably source from the brands we love most. Club members enjoy access to over 150 vendors at the best trade prices in the industry, all in one place. Daniel House Club's mission is to be the quickest place for interior design professionals to find and buy what they are looking for and it's fulfilling its mission. According to one member in Denver, the concierge is really helpful, and that's what sets them apart from everyone else. I've noticed even showrooms having a bit of a harder time when claims and damages come up, but DHC's concierge service cuts that time down significantly. Another member simply says, I could not pay someone to do what Daniel House Club does for me. They handle all the logistics after the purchase, which just makes it so easy. So sign up today and see for yourself. Visit danielhouse.club BOD for 50% off your membership. Melissa, nice to see you. It's nice to see you too. Thanks for having me on. Remind me, where are you at? I am in Florida, Jacksonville. Um, so that's very northeast Florida. If I know exactly with where that is. My uh, I, my brother lived there for a while. They moved there so their daughter could go to the Bulls swim school. She was a swimmer. Um, 
So yeah, so I've been to Jacksonville a few times. Lovely, lovely. Oh, that's so fun. Yeah, yeah. Small world, isn't it? We are going to jump into a conversation about, among other things, the tendency for creative types to over-deliver. Even describe what that is, because probably most of us just think, oh, that's just business as normal. But what are the the pitfalls of over-delivering? Yeah, so when I say over-deliver, what that means is we're doing more work than what was outlined in our proposal or our statement of work is what some may people, some may call it on the scope. So ideally what we want is we want a situation where we have a, a core offering, a core package. This is what we can sell, right, to clients, and there are a predetermined set of deliverables. This is what we're gonna do. This is how long it's going to take us to do it. And this is what it's going to cost, right? So for so everybody is, listening, this would apply if you are delivering a flat fee package to your contract, not so much an hourly fee contract. Correct. Okay. Yes. We are really thinking of flat fee scenarios here where you're, it's that transition, right? I'm going to do this and transform. Have, you're going to have this transformation and you're going to pay me X number of dollars for transformation, regardless of whether it takes 10 hours, 20 hours, 100 hours, Right. So is the issue that um, the, is there a, is perfectionism part of the problem? Like just wanting to provide the client with so many answers or is it a, a, an inability to create a more um, cl- clear boundaries around the scope of work? Or I'm, I'm assuming you're going to tell me it's a whole bunch of things. It is. Yeah. So there can be a few things going on. So come, so to come back to it, our scope, right, is the things we have put in our proposal. And then when we're over delivering, it's when we're doing things outside of that scope that we're not getting paid to do. So it's the extra stuff that we end up doing. And there can be a few reasons that this happens. So one, what can happen is we as the business owner or the team member aren't exactly clear on what's included and not, not included Right. So we can't really expect the client to be. And then so maybe we find ourselves in a situation where the client asks for something and we think to ourselves, man, we never really said that wasn't included. So, yeah, I guess we'll do that, too. Right. And then that's when we get what we call scope creep, where you you have this thing and then, the you know, the request from the client is like really just outside of that. And then there's another request because now we've opened the door and now there's another thing that's just outside of that and mm-hmm. then just outside and it's creep, right? So then before we know it, we're just creeping our way out more and more and more and doing more and more just quick little things, right? Um, that are taking us away from our core service offering. And then what can happen is these quick little things just continue to build up. And then what's happening is a project that we had intended taking 20 hours and quoted with a mindset of I'll get this done in a month and it'll take me about 20 hours worth of work is now dragging on. And now it's been six weeks and now it's been eight weeks. And now you can't take on another project because you're still wrapping up this project. And what you thought was going to take 15 or 20 hours of work is now at 30, 35, 40 hours worth of work. And that will really eat into your profitability. Well, and at that point, in my experience, many professionals, especially professional creative types, will just put their head in the sand and deny how much time it's taking. They'll just stop logging the hours. They'll stop keeping track. They'll start telling themselves things like, I am going to spend a little bit more time on this, but that's okay because the client is going to be so happy. And then I'm going to get these great photos for my website. Like there are a lot of justifications we used to enable us to continue in that kind of behavior, I guess. 
I think you're exactly right. We start getting this idea of like, well, the customer's right and I want them to be happy and it really would look better if I could do this extra little thing. Um, And we do. And we start to tell ourselves that. Um, And, you know, when we stop, though, and look at it, we're actually not doing anybody a service because what can happen is, is we find now we're maybe really over delivering for the squeaky wheel, the client who has lots of requests or isn't afraid to ask for more or has lots of questions. And then that really is draining your time and ability and creative energies for other clients as well. And whether we realize it or not, and then we're getting ourselves constantly like bumped up against deadlines and high pressure situations We're finding where we're not making as much money as we could be in our business. We're feeling really drained. We're getting in a lot of overwhelm and burnout. And so really, when we look at the repercussions of that, but I just really want to give a great client experience, it's okay. We can see that when you really start to extrapolate that out and you look at the impact it can have across all clients and over an extended period of time, you're really not serving anybody, right? Right. And you you hit the nail on the head too. The minute you start allowing those extras to go in uncharged, unbilled for, mm-hmm. you open the door and there will be more requests. And at that point, it's hard to say no because you've already set a precedent that extras are okay and you'll accommodate them and you're flexible, right? Which is dangerous, yes. which is really dangerous. It is. This is, I mean, to unpack all the things at play in the scenario we're talking about would take a year, right? Because it, it could take a while. Yeah. Cause it, 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 there are layers as we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm, there's this idea that we haven't yet taken responsibility for making sure that scope of work is really nailed down and crystal clear. Uh, we sometimes don't take responsibility for saying no, that's mm-hmm. extra. And, and being yeah. ready for the first request. I always find it's the first time that the client wants to step out of bounds that is the most important time to say no. I would agree with that. I would absolutely agree with that because circling back to what you were commenting on before, once we set that precedent that we're going to say, sure thing, on that extra little request, it's going to get harder and harder to come back and say, okay, time out. That's actually not how we're going to do things. And what's really dangerous is now, not only have you set a precedent with that client, you're creating a precedent in yourself and in anybody who may be supporting you as the business owner, that this is okay to do with this other client too. Because when another client asks for one little thing, what are we going to do? We're going to compare it and say, wow, we did do that extra stuff for this other client. And we did do that extra project and the extra little thing. We really should do it for them too, to keep fairness, right? right? Amongst our clients. So we're setting a lot of precedence when we go ahead and step outside of our, our scope of work. And I think, and in your experience, Melissa, would you agree that The overwhelm that's caused by not keeping a lid on the tasks you're supposed to be able, you're supposed to be doing on behalf of clients actually then exacerbates the problem because you have no time to go back and analyze. So you're on to the next job and the next job and the next job. And, you know, I don't, I never have thought I'm the smartest person in the room, but I found myself doing that kind of stuff for years before I went, wait a minute. Why am I, why didn't I change this years ago? I didn't change it because I was too busy. Yeah, that's a really great point. And I'm glad you brought that up because you will, you'll find yourself in a state of overwhelm and you think to yourself, like, 
God, well, first you won't even realize, you won't even realize how much extra work you're doing right. really for free because you're so busy and you're trying to, you know, just kind of stay ahead. Or even if you are realizing it, you think to yourself, well, let me just get through this project, right? Like I've already set a bad precedent with this client. Like right. this one's a lost cause. I'll, I'll do better for the next one. But it's all happening so quickly. And now you're tired. You're in burnout. You're coming back to thinking, what what, what did I even promise I would give this person? Right. <laughs> um, and then you do really get yourself in a situation where it's it gets increasingly difficult to put the lid back on. Right, right. What would you what advice would you give someone who finds themselves in a new project and they're afraid of this? This has happened to them before. They've been in this situation before, and despite best efforts to keep a lid on the scope of work, um, this is going to happen. What's the best language they can use when a client makes a request that's extra? So first, I always like to take a step back here and say the easiest time to say no is before they've ever even asked. Yes. Right? So get really, really clear in your proposal and in your client onboarding about what they can expect on this is what's included. And I've actually found that sometimes what can be helpful is we'll often share what's included, but sometimes it can be helpful to also share a few things that are not included Mm -hmm. just to really create that clarity because us, um, you know, we're the specialists, we're the experts. We really know the details. We understand how all these things work together and our clients don't. And they're looking to us for that guidance um, in, in what this all entails and what all of this means. And so we can get really clear up front and set some really good expectations. Um, and one of the things I, I noticed too is I'll have a business owner and they'll say, well, I have it in my contract, but you know, I just don't think anybody reads it and it gets lost. So then I, then they feel guilty about holding that boundary. Mm-hmm. And so so what happens is we get into the relationship with the client and the project has started. And now, now we feel guilty because we're like, maybe it wasn't really clear. Maybe I didn't, you know, maybe I didn't emphasize hold, it enough. Right. And... I didn't hold firm in the beginning and emphasize that enough. So that's why I really love um, proposals to have that statement of work, like a very specific bulleted list of this is what I'm going to do for you. And then we can even have a clause down at the bottom that says, um, work that falls outside of this scope or this list can be provided at an additional cost. You can email to request a bid. We can have that conversation. So what you're pretty much doing is you're telling them, um, I can't do these things for you, but they are going to be extra. Mm-hmm. And you can, if you have a contract and there are specific spots in that, you can have initial spots where you know that they've read that. Um, that that line that says this is what's included. So I think first and foremost, just making sure we're being really transparent up front, because again, it's easier to say no before they even ask, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but should we find ourselves in a situation where they have asked us to do something that falls outside of that scope of work, you now have a really great document and place you can point back to. And you can say like, oh, yes, I do think that actually would be a a great thing that we could add on that is considered an additional fee. If you reference back to your proposal, you will see that 
if this is something you're interested in, I would love to just hop on a quick call. We can talk through the details and I can give you an estimate on that work. Mm -hmm. Part of the challenge, I think, with a flat feet contract, at least for interior design professionals, is it's not just laying out here the things we're going to do. We're going to do floor plans. We're going to do elevations. We're going to select all the furniture and fixtures, the FF&E. But it's also about fine-tuning what is allowed for within each of those things. For example, am I going to do one floor plan or am I going to do three floor plans and let you pick, right? So the language also has to be clear about the number of revisions. And I found even what constitutes a revision versus a whole new uh, exploration. You know, we're going down a different path now that's never been part of what's included here. Yes, I'm, yes. And this is definitely something we should take a minute to address because you're exactly right. Not even just saying, I will do the, what's included? Am I also going to pick out curtains and flooring and structural? Like what's, what are some of the details of what that might look like? How many options am I going to show you, right? How many revisions that we're going to have? That's all really important stuff to outline. And then what you can do to make sure that you're sticking with that is when you're sharing, right, whether it's right there as a walkthrough, if you're showing a presentation, models, whatever, you have those calls, you have those moments labeled to match up. Like, you know, and you can get more creative with it, but this is like the proof one call, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, this is the proof and we're going to share with them. Like, this is the initial review. And during the initial review, what I want you to be looking for are those big things. Like, you know, don't get too caught up on what that pillow is going to look like. Like, let's really focus on the overall look and the overall feel and guide them a little bit on what they need to focus on. Because it's easy for a client to lock in on on a small detail. And then later they want to come back and say, well, actually, I didn't even want a door over there. And you're like, why am I just hearing about this, right? So we want to make sure we're dialing in that like during this call, this is what I want you to look at. These are the things that we're going to walk away in agreement on that we're going to move forward with. Then on our next call, we're going to talk more details. And on that call, we should figure out X, Y, and Z. So again, we're really just setting good expectations about what's going to happen on each step. And then what you can do is if they start trickling in these revisions, um, if it's not the appropriate time for that revision, you can say, yeah, that's a great thought. I I was wondering about the rug also, but we're going to really look more closely at that in the second call. What I want you to pay attention to right now is X, Y, and Z. And then you make a note to come back to that. And then if you find they email you a thought or a request, you say that and you say, hey, that's great. I want to make sure I have all of your revisions and updates by this date and time. How does that sound? Can you make sure you get them all collected for me and sent them for me? This way, they don't fire off a few things. You get to work. And then they fire off some more things. And then you're back touching it again. And then more Right. So if we're guiding them along that way and using things like, I want you to look at this right now and let's get an agreement on that. And then we'll get an agreement on the next stop, the next step, and then really encourage them. Have you collected all of your revisions? Have you reviewed X, Y, and Z? And giving that deadline of this is when we're going to get them all to me, that will really help contain revisions and things from getting out of control. Yeah, the language that we use around revisions is they will be executed at one time. Perfect. So, and and mm-hmm. you know, 
we just make sure that if there's to avoid that exactly what you're talking about that trickling in no we don't mm-hmm. nobody has time for that and nope. i don't think projects are improved by trickling in details i think projects mm-hmm. are improved by complete and total concentration um at, when you're yeah. together at that meeting what happens and there I is think really especially- important yeah, and I think especially when you're looking at something as a design, like they need, they're looking to you for that holistic look and feel. So they can, you know, if they start piecemealing in feedback and you're trying to adjust and accommodate design and direction based on this, their feedback may start to kind of contradict itself, right? Or you're like, well, that doesn't really match this. And now you're feeling stuck a designer. And that's when the project itself can start to kind of come off the rails a little bit. And then you're looking at it and you're like, how did this get here? And the client's like, this isn't what I envisioned. Right. Um, and it's because you had been working off of maybe not complete or even accurate data, we'll call it, right? Being right. their revisions or feedback. That's why we're always saying you, if you have to be the lead on the project, at the point you start letting the client lead you around and bring you back back and forth between your own process, it's never going to work. So you have to maintain control of the project. And that goes back again to state the rules of working together up front clearly. And everybody who is a business of design member or listens to the podcast knows, and I've been advocating for this since 2004, read your contract line by line. Don't let the client not read and understand something that you put in your contract. It's going to become critically important. And so when I'm on a job site and a client is asking me to increase the scope of work, I'll say, absolutely happy to do it. Um, I'll have the office uh, send you an update about the fees for that. You know, they're just, Perfect. it's just business yeah. as usual. Yeah. That happens yeah. all the time. Happy to do it. Part of my job though, I think is to insist or at least let the client know, I feel strongly certain aspects mm-hmm. have to be part of the scope. You can't have for in, in, at least in our world an in interior design world, you can't have the client say, I want you to do floor plans and I want you to um, pick all the FF and E, but I don't want to pay for elevations. Well, I can't do my job without elevation. So part of the scope has to be dictated by the design professional. And there's only so much room that there is to to move. You know what I mean? In, in terms mm-hmm. of what I'm willing to cut out of the scope of work. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that is good. And as the expert, you're, you're absolutely right. That's another boundary you need to hold with the client. And in that agreement is... No, these are the things we're definitely going to do. And then maybe these are the things that feel a little more optional, right? right? Um, and these are things that we don't have to do, but these core pieces are the package. This is what's in there. And no, I'm not, I'm not stripping it out, right? Like we talked yeah, about because before. we can't deliver what you need if we strip right. this apart. We yeah. can't strip this apart. And so say no before they can ask. This is what it entails, to yeah. execute. And I always think too, it's good to remind them of, okay, this is your pain point. This is what we were trying to solve for you. This is what you're trying to accomplish. And I want to do the best job for you. And I know the best way to get this work done for you is to make sure we include elevation and right floor plate, like in the, the pieces right. and say, cause these are all going to work together. And so these have to be done together. Yeah. And then those are the things worth, that's the hill worth dying on. Right? Mm-hmm. I can't. Yeah. I can't do the job without you know. I can't do the job with one hand tied behind my back. It, it won't exactly. work. And so that's the job I'm willing to walk away from. Can you touch on a little bit, Melissa? This idea that 
often creative professionals want to over-deliver in terms of um, providing the client with options. They want to, you know, show the client the depth and breadth of their knowledge, maybe. I have often found that that's actually hiding a lack of confidence. It's because it's very scary to say, this is what I think you should do. This is exactly the fabric you should use for your windows and none other, just this one, right? So can you talk about that tendency to try to, to do more than you need to, rather than just be the expert and say what you think the client should do? I think you're right. I think some of it maybe stems from some insecurity, that desire to really want them to be happy. There could be some scarcity stuff going on like, oh, but what if I bring them this thing that I know is the right choice and and they don't like it or they don't trust my vision. Um, And so they come at it from that space. And I will tell you, when you show up into the, you know, client business owner relationship in that way, you are setting that project up for failure because you have now passed the baton to the client and said, you're in charge. Tell me how this is going to look. Tell me how this is, you know, what you want. And I can tell you, I know we all just want to give a really great client experience. And I will say the client wants an experience where they don't feel overwhelmed by decisions. Right. They have hired and paid you because this felt like something they needed help with and they wanted your expert opinion, right? And I think too many options does, doesn't does feel good, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there's there's lots of studies that even say restaurants should have smaller menus. When you get oh, too, yes. I when totally you get agree. too many options, right? When you get too many options, you think, ah, I don't know. And then there's a lot of waffling. There's a lot of indecision. Um, now they're going to go ask their friend. They're going to go ask their neighbor. Now you've got, you know, their best friend, Katie, who's chiming in on the design. And this person who's chiming in, nope, you need to come and you need to stand firm on what you think is the best option or really limit it. Like, yeah. I see we can go with this way or this way, like A, B, A, B, C, stop, like yeah. stop there. Yeah, absolutely. You remind me, there's a restaurant in Paris that we love to go to. I hope it's still there. I haven't, I haven't been to Paris in years, but I'd like to go, called Entrecote de Boeuf. And we just happened to be walking by one day, and there was a couple sitting out on the sidewalk, and they said, if you haven't been here, you have to come and try it. And we're like, okay. So you go, and there's no menu. They only serve one thing. It's this beef dish, and it comes with French fries. And it, there's no personality. It is not charming. You sit down. They, they ask you if you want red or white wine. Uh, um, I can't even think of the words right now, blanc or rouge. Uh, You know, that's all they say, blanc or rouge. Blanc, okay, it's bad. The wine's not great. And then they throw down this beef and a mustard sauce with French fries on your plate, and it's divine. It's delicious. And about halfway through the meal, they come and throw seconds on your plate. They kind of top up your meal. And that's it. And I'm telling you, there's it is always packed all the time. It is packed. Packed all the time. Anyway, sorry. But I digress. I'm now I'm talking about travel again, which is what happens to me. Um, you mentioned, oh my God, what was it? It was so good. You mentioned um, what we were talking about when you talked about the Was food. it Katie's input? <laughs> the neighbor Katie? Yes. That was it. Oh my God. Um I have learned even to just double down on revisions, right? Yeah. So when a client says, oh, maybe I want to see this, I will double down on my first choice and say, you know, we could explore that. You do have one round of revisions coming with this contract. 
But I would strongly urge you to stick with this plan and here's why. And Mm -hmm. I find that that's true for, you know, a drapery fabric. You know, I don't know if I like that fabric. I know, I know why you're saying that. But when you look at it in the context of everything else in the room, it is the piece that holds it all together. And I would hate to lose it. And then often because you portray that confidence, the client will go with your suggestion. But if you waffle, which is, you know, the third time waffles have come up, because when you and I opened this podcast, everybody didn't get to hear it. But I said, what did you have for breakfast? I was testing your mic and you said waffles. Clearly I'm hungry. It's lunchtime, you know, and I need to go and have some lunch now. Uh, But when you waffle, the client has this impression that maybe you're not the expert they are hoping you are. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I think what can come from the um, strength, we'll call it, to stand firm in your decision, obviously experience, confidence, um, but I also think, you know, clarity in your workflow, in your process, like your creative process, your process with the with the client and how you're moving them through that. I think having just a lot of clarity and understanding about how you're going to take them on this creative journey and the certain um, phases you're going to move through both, again, like from a creative standpoint and also just very logistically, like when I'm going to send an email and when I'm going to schedule a call. Um, And you were able to hold that because you knew, okay, they get one round of revisions and we're going to have that call in a couple weeks. And if we start cracking this open now, it's really going to have that trickle down effect. And later down, we're going to have more and more problems. So you had that clarity. And then you were also to share, able to share with them. Like, I see that. Here's why I think we should stay. And here's what the next moment, though, when we could talk about it or consider and really moving them and securing them in those decisions along the way. So I think that's a third piece of it, that experience, that confidence and being just really clear on your process, um, I think will make it easier for you to hold those boundaries. And the more clear you are on that process, um, the fewer bottle caps or bottlenecks, bottlenecks, the fewer (laughs) bottlenecks you're going to have in the workflow, right? Because you start getting, you know, random revisions on two, three, four projects and suddenly all of your timelines are out the window and now you have almost a crisis on your hands. How are you going to satisfy all of these clients, including, as you mentioned at the top, that client who isn't necessarily the squeaky wheel, that client who's just kind of going along with things and pretty easy, Mm -hmm. and suddenly you're bending over backwards for the one who's asking for all of this extra, and you're ignoring the one who's quiet, who may also be wanting something, but you're just not paying attention. Yes, yes. Exactly. It's tricky business, isn't it? It can be. Yeah. And I think it's just coming back to like kind of clarity, creating those processes, getting into that really good routine. Um, I I think that really helps. It also too gives you something to fall back on. You know, like we talked about lots of revisions trickling in. It's hard to keep track of. When we have that clear process in place, it gets a lot easier to say, wait a second, (laughs) this is this is the third thing you've asked me for and you're all done, right? Like we're done with your revisions. Um, It can really help. And again, that transparency upfront, even with the client um, lets them know, lets them know what's going on too. What do you say to that professional who works in a flat fee contract and does not want to track the resource of time? Because we hear that a lot. 
I love flat fees because I don't want to track my hours and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be billing all the time and la la la. I I just, I think it is imperative that people time track, even the business owner, or sometimes I'll have a business owner and just their VA is time tracking or their assistant, right? Um, Or only certain people. I think everybody, including the business owner should be time tracking, um, and, and here's why. One, because you don't know when a project's really taking a long time. Yeah. When you're not tracking your time, you don't know how profitable it is because you could think, my goodness, that was a $30,000 project. That was awesome. And then when you run the math on how many hours you put into that project right. and how many sleepless nights, you're like, wow, I was working for $17 an hour for the last eight months, right? right? Like that does not feel good. Um, And you can't continue to improve your estimates because you can say like, this this is a $30,000 thing. That's always what I charge. That's always what I do. But then when you break it down, you say, oh, well, I make $17 an hour when I do that. And I've got to pay out these fees for these, the software I have and the tax. So you're like, oh my gosh, this isn't any, this isn't going to pay my bills. Right. It, all you end up finding out when you're not time tracking is I'm doing something wrong. I'm exhausted. I can't pay the bills. I should just burn this down and go work for somebody else. Right. <laughs> I should just abandon ship. Right. But when we see that, when we think, oh, wow, I really thought that I could get this done and for nice round numbers, 50 hours, and it turns out it's taking 80. Right. You have an opportunity there. You can either tighten your scope and say, I'm not going to allow the extra revisions. I'm not going to allow the extra phone calls and the visits and the trips to the store or whatever that starts to look like. I'm going to peel those out. So you're going to tighten your scope. Or you also might find you need to increase your rates. And what you thought was a $30,000 project maybe actually needs to be a $40,000 project. Or a $60,000 Or a 60, right? Right? Like wherever that falls. But you can't make educated decisions about what to charge your clients and what should be included in your scope of work until you track your time. Right. Yeah. Such good advice. We like to end every episode with something we call design intervention. Just a great piece Mm -hmm. of business advice. What comes to mind? Yeah. So I, it's funny, I've been having this conversation with a couple of people and I, I think others say it more succinctly than I do, but I think the the idea here is you need to build your business now in the way you always want it to work. So for example, like I, I really always hated this hustle culture of like, well, I'm just going to work 70 hours a week and I'm going to get this thing off the ground and I'm going to serve all of the clients. And then I'm once it's a million dollar business, I can pump the brakes and I'll work 15 hours a week. The momentum that has swept up and built up behind you when you're working 70 hours a week doesn't just go away when right. you decide you don't want to do it anymore. Um, And some of the stuff we talked about before, when you're in this overwhelm, you're in a very reactive state, you can't even be concentrating on true, important, um, you know, things going on in your business. So I am a firm believer in slow and steady wins the race. And that doesn't mean, you know, we have to take 10 years, but it also means don't let's not expect it to happen overnight. Slow and steady, sustainable is like the name of the game when it comes to, to business. Yeah, I had somebody recently say one bird at a time. They were, it was a father, it was a book. It was an example from a book and the father had told its son who had delayed doing his summer homework project to mm-hmm. write about one bird every single day over the summer holidays. The dad said, one bird at a time. 
One bird, one bird at, a at a time. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. how you're going to get that done. One bird at a time. Such yeah. good advice, Melissa. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. I enjoyed our conversation. Now let's go get some food, right? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Waffles. Mm. Thanks for listening and supporting the BOD mission to improve the industry one design business at a time. If you're ready to implement an exact business model for running a streamlined, profitable business, field tested by thousands of design professionals around the world, head to businessofdesign.com and get started today. It's time to dramatically improve your business and transform your life.